We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Apostolic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. 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 And amen. You agree? Greetings, those of you that are with us in person this morning and those of you that have joined us online. This is a Pentecost Sunday, 50 days, 50 days after that Easter weekend. I have about 24 prayer partners, and I put uh, a letter, an email out to them after week, week after week telling them about what's coming up Sunday, what I plan to preach or what somebody else will be preaching and soliciting their prayers. And I got a response this week uh, from Ken. He's in the audience and he said, Pentecost should have equal prominence in the church as does Christmas and Easter. I thought that's an interesting thought and a good thought. Don't know what you know about Pentecost Sunday, but maybe... At the end of this sermon, maybe you'll agree with his words. Now, that original day of Pentecost, also, right, seven weeks, 50 days after that first Easter, marked the initial coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised. Remember Jesus' words in the weeks before he left? I'm leaving, but I'm going to send a comforter. They had no clue what he meant. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to be with you. And so this Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is a good day then for us to revisit the creed that we left about a month ago. And so we're returning just for this one day to the We Believe sermon series. And the specific phrase is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Father, now as we look to your word, speak to us, I pray. May we be of a mind and a heart, not only to listen, but to hear, not just with our ears, but with our heart. And may we be willing to agree with what you say and respond by saying, you can have my whole heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. They were Jesus' last words. The resurrection was 40 days ago, and the book of Acts, that would be the fifth book of the, of the New Testament, chapter 1 opens, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And then it goes on, on the occasion of their last meeting, here is what he said. Here they are, Jesus' last words. In just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. 
telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then the pull of gravity lessened on Jesus, and he began to ascend and leave them. And, and I can picture the disciples standing there, gaping with their mouths open, watching Jesus disappear into the clouds. And then just as Jesus said, he said in a few days, 10 days to be exact, they were together, 120 believers, all in the same room, must have been a big room, waiting and praying, and Acts chapter 2 records it all, and now I'm reading from Acts 2 verse 2, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm in the skies above them, and it filled the house where they were meeting, and everyone present, here are the key words here, everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, do you know the story? If you don't, here's the way it goes. Those believers, after that happened, came out of that room, totally changed, transformed people. In the preceding weeks, the disciples had been discouraged, defeated, timid, self-centered, and even cowardly. I mean, really, they had been in hiding now for days, even weeks, lest the chief priests come and get them and crucify them too. So they had been hiding from the authorities, and now, on this day, this day of Pentecost, they were bold, courageous, self-assured, confident, out of that room, and they came down into the street, and the first miracle happened. It says they were speaking in languages that they never learned. This is the original speaking in tongues, so to speak. They only spoke one language. That would have been Aramaic. And yet people all through the crowd, huge crowd in Jerusalem on that weekend, uh, heard them speak in their own language. So the miracle was in the ears of the people, hearing the language. And, 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 and their message was singular. Their message was, Jesus Christ is Lord. You might say, well, what happened to those disciples? How do you explain this transformation? Well, what got into them? Exactly. The Holy Spirit got into them, filled them, controlled them, transformed them. Then later that same day, still now on that original day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching to a huge crowd in downtown Jerusalem about what had just happened to them, this coming of the Holy Spirit. And he says these words, it's for everybody. Not just for us, it's for everyone. And then he quoted Old Testament Joel, written hundreds of years before. Joel had said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And Peter is saying, the day that Joel spoke about has arrived. It's here. And then 30 years later, let's move ahead 30 years, Paul the Apostle, nearing the end of his days, writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, and here's what he says. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. Now, did you know this? Ever since, ever since the day of Pentecost, for every person that comes to faith in Jesus Christ, as a child, I remember it like this, inviting Jesus into my heart. That was the language that my parents used, and that's valid, that's good. When, when you become, when you became a believer, the Holy Spirit took up residence in you. Yes, he did. 
And so Paul is saying here to the church at Ephesus, he's saying, don't give your body over to the control of some foreign substance, such as alcohol, but instead allow the Holy Spirit, who already lives in you, to control you totally. Is that you? In just a few minutes, we're going to sing that great song. We're going to sing Chris Tomlin's version, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to you. When we sing that, will you mean it? I mean, will that be a song from your heart? I'm going to tell you a story now, and it's keep in mind now, this is just a story. The story goes like this the, the, the Pope was to appear on a balcony in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And the crowds had gathered, as they always do. You've probably seen pictures of it on TV. And they were waiting for him to appear, and he didn't, and he didn't. And then all of a sudden, a cardinal appeared in his place with somber face. He spoke to the crowd, and this is what he said. The Holy Father has been stricken with a heart attack. And he's seen the doctors, and the doctors have told us that he will not survive without a heart transplant. And the crowd, as you can imagine in the story, fell silent. They were stunned. And then suddenly, from way back in the crowd, came a singular voice that said, take my heart. Then another, take my heart. And then another, take my heart. And then another, and then three together, and five together. And, and as, the, as the seconds stretched up towards a minute, the whole crowd were echoing the words, take my heart. The cardinal was deeply moved. And he spoke these words. He said, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. And he said, I have here in my hands a feather. And he said, I'm going to drop the feather off of the edge of the balcony. And the one on whom the feather lands, the Holy Father will have his heart. And the crowd just continued, take my heart, take my heart. All over the crowd, the voices were in unison. Take my heart. And then he dropped the feather. And the crowd continued, take my heart. <sighs> take my heart. <sighs> I was 35. I was a believer at six. I was 35 before I stopped blowing the feather. So my question for me and for all of us today is, does he have your heart? Does he, does he have your whole heart? Let's alter the question. Here's the question I'll answer this morning. This question, what does a person look like? What does a person look like? What does a believer for whom the Spirit has their whole heart, what do they look like? 
And, and the, the answer is in Ephesians 5. You can look there now or you can go home and read it in detail. That'd be a good idea. The verse we just read is in Ephesians 5.18. Here's what it reads. It, it spells, uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I just read that verse, right? The rest of the chapter spells out what that looks like in the life of a believer. So here's our question. What does it look like when a person says, take my whole heart, and they mean it? What would you look like? And here's the answer. When a person, when the Holy Spirit has our whole heart, we will, here's number one, be pure. And I take you right to the book, not making these up. Stay with me now. Verse 3, Ephesians 5, 3 says, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. Now, the word there, greed, probably a better translation in this setting would be lust or lust among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, rebuke and expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. Now, you need to understand that what Paul is writing here to these believers about sexual immorality is a radical departure from the cultural norm of that day. I don't need to tell you, do I? It's also at odds with the cultural norms of this day, too. I'll come back to that thought in a minute. But the common idea in the culture that Paul was addressing here would be like this. Oh, come on. Enjoy. Indulge yourself in this area of sexual freedom. Whatever you feel like doing, just do it. Why not? You see, in the pagan religions of that time, nothing was forbidden. Nothing. The pagan temple in Corinth, the pagan temple in Corinth even had temple prostitutes. Can you imagine? And, and the income that these temple prostitutes received was used to, for the upkeep of the temple. And so abstinence before marriage in that culture back then, no. One man, one woman in an exclusive relationship after marriage, it was unheard of. And today, today, what I'm teaching Perhaps some voices listening to me today, but many people in this culture would hear what I'm teaching and say, perhaps say about me, what planet is he living on? Because to teach what I'm now teaching you would be to be an ultra right-wing prude to believe and teach this kind of a thing. But I need to tell you that God, God is not a killjoy. God is not a spoil sport. God is not trying to keep us from having fun. He made us. He loves us. God knows what makes us tick. Hear these words. He knows what makes us truly happy and fulfilled. Yes, he does. And, and, and it's God who says, God who says this, sex belongs in the marriage bed. One man, one woman in a committed, stable, enduring relationship. That's a, when I think about it, that's a real good definition of marriage in anybody's book. And God himself calls, calls sex outside of marriage, he calls that adultery, and he calls it sin. And he says, 
that it, and sin, meaning what? That it's ultimately not good for you. Nothing that God calls sin is good for us in the long run. Have you learned that? And he calls sex previous to marriage fornication. Now, there's a word that's totally disappeared in our culture. But God calls it sin, meaning what? That it's ultimately not in your best interest. Some of you remember the great basketball star from 30 years ago, Wilt Chamberlain. If you're a basketball fan at all, you at least you know the name. He wrote a book. He wrote a book 28 years ago. He wrote it in 1991 called A View from Above. Well, he was seven foot one. I guess he'd be, he could write A View from Above. In that book, he claimed to have, I hesitate, to, I thought I wouldn't use this, but I am going to say it because he wrote it in the book. He claimed to have slept with 20,000 different women in his life. You can imagine the reception that that book, that comment received in women's groups back in that day. Just incense, the demeaning of women and all the rest. But that's what he said in the book. But here's the point I want to make. In a 1999 interview, just shortly before Chamberlain died, here's what he said. Having a thousand different ladies is pretty cool, but I've learned in my life. I've also found that having one woman a thousand different times is more satisfying. And when I read that, I thought, was Chamberlain coming down to his death and conceding that just maybe God is right after all? You think? Well, Paul goes a little further with this subject and says, it is shameful even to talk about these things. He's not talking about preachers preaching it, right? And then he says, tells us to shun obscene stories and coarse jokes. Bible scholar William Barclay wisely cautions, to jest about a thing or to make it a frequent subject of conversation is to introduce it into the mind and to bring near the actual doing of it. What's he saying? Be pure. Don't do that coarse joke, obscene story thing. When the Holy Spirit fills, when we say, take my heart, all of it, we will be pure. Now, I spent a long time in number one, the, the next four, not near as long on it, but here's the five, here's two. When we say, take my heart, and we mean it sincerely and allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, we'll be discerning. The word is discerning, and I take you to verse 6. It's before you. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. Don't act thoughtlessly, but try to understand what the Lord wants you to do. What's he saying? In another, say another way, he's saying, don't let the world's propaganda get to you. Don't believe what they say, what they practice, and what they teach. You see, our culture... Our culture has a way of wrapping up sexual immorality in an attractive package with a pretty bow. It's wrapped up in innocence and good fun and freedom and wholesomeness. But when it's unwrapped, you know what it is? A lot of guilt, lack of satisfaction, frustration, addiction, even emptiness. So Paul says, be careful. Don't swallow their line. Be discerning. In the shopping malls of our country, 
well, our shopping malls are quite different than, let's say, shopping in the streets of Panajachel, Mexico, uh, Guatemala. I've been there four times in recent years, and we always work for six days, and we take a day off and go to Panajachel. Well, I'll tell you what, the stores there, there's no, there's no glare of artificial light. Their shops there are simple canvas-walled enclosures open to the street. Matter of fact, a lot of their goods are right out in the street. And so if you were there to buy an article of clothing or maybe a piece of jade or leather goods or whatever it might be, you could literally pick it up and hold it up to the sun to see if there were any flaws in it. The scripture says, the scripture reads, your word, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Can I make a suggestion? The things that we read, the, the shows or the programs that we watch, the things we listen to, the thoughts we entertain, the conversations we participate in. Can I suggest that maybe we should hold them all up to the light? Hold them up to the light and that would help us discern what is pleasing to the Father and what is not pleasing to the Father. Be discerning. Don't be fooled. Paul says, don't act thoughtlessly. So that's two. People, people who say to the Holy Spirit, take my heart, take all of me. They'll be pure. They'll be discerning. Here's number three. They'll be loving. Yes, they will. Verse two. Live a life filled with love for others, following the example of Christ who loved you loved you and gave himself as a sacrifice to take away your sins. I want you to notice here in this verse before you, Paul doesn't say, live a life filled with love for others and stop there. And, and I think I know why, because he knows how likely those Ephesians were, and us cross-pointers, how inclined that we would be to interpret love as, as a feeling of compassion and end there. If you feel love, you feel compassion for someone you haven't really loved yet, no, you haven't. And the truth is, he goes on and says, live a life of love following the example of Christ who loved you and gave himself as a sacrifice. He's making the point that you can't love without giving. To love is to give. Love is a verb. It's an action verb. 1 John 3.18 says... Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3.18. Those early Christians, do you know what the chief characteristic that the culture noticed in the Christians to ID them? You know it, don't you? You know what it was? It was love. Look how those Christians love. That was their comment. Do you ever wonder? what those Christians did exactly to pick up that label. An article some time ago in the Business Weekly described the work of a company named Advertisers. It's on the screen there. Get it? H-E-A-D. Ad. There's an ad in the word there. And this company would actually pay college students 150 bucks a week to wear a temporary tattoo. I guess you couldn't have bangs then, could you? A temporary tattoo on their forehead, advertising, advertising a service or a product. 
Can you imagine that, going around with a tattoo on your forehead that says, I love Ford cars? <laughs> who would, I mean, who would do that? <laughs> I don't know why I'm so hard on Fords, but... Do you think, do you think that the early culture recognized Christians as being loving because they wore a tattoo on their forehead that says, I love you? I don't think so. Matter of fact, there's a list a little later on in the book of Acts of some of the things they did and did constantly. They, they shared their possessions. They, they gave to the poor. They cared for widows and orphans. They visited those in prisons. They encouraged one another constantly. And they told people about Jesus. They would say, listen, I met Jesus and he changed my life. Spirit-filled people do that. That's three then. Here's number four. People who say to the Holy Spirit, Take my heart and mean it. They'll also be thankful. I take you to verse 4. Let there be thankfulness to God then, and we'll jump to verse 20. Then you will always give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to pick that up there now. Let there be thankfulness. Always give thanks for everything. Are you serious? Give thanks for everything? Did you catch that? Paul is talking here more than about occasionally saying, thank you, God. Oh, that's good. Or to someone else, thank you. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for what you said. He's talking about more than that. He's talking about a life attitude. He's talking about a lifestyle when he says we're to love. The last time I had my vision checked, I did not realize, I was shocked when I realized how far my vision had dropped since the previous test. So, I mean, I was, I was quite shocked. Matter of fact, if you were out hitchhiking back then and I were to stop to pick you up, you would have been wise not to get in. My vision was quite bad. And so I got new lenses and now I see clearly. It'd be all right to get in now if I stopped. Here's my point. In order to be thankful in everything, I'm talking in everything now, you need to see things clearly through God's lenses. You can do that, you know, through God's lenses. It was 1985 when a bomb went off in an Air India flight, and it went down off the coast of Ireland, killing everyone on board. The watch officer in the boat below told in a quivering voice of being handled, handed a dead infant to place in a body bag, and he told the press this. He said, my faith in goodness and God died then. When I read that account, I was just saddened to read it. But listen, here's my point in telling you that story. Spirit-controlled persons, rather than such an experience destroying their faith, it would simply drive them deeper into the arms of the God who weeps with them at such an atrocity. And all the while recognizing that even out of such terrible tragedy, God will indeed bring good. Be thankful in everything. It's another evidence of a person who has said to the Spirit, take my heart, take all of me.
And here's the fifth and last. Be joyful. I take you to verse 19. Then you will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts. You know, being joyful is really just thankfulness celebrating. So let me ask you this morning. Do you have music in your heart? I mean, I know you have it on, in your voice, maybe in your fingers, your hands, your arms. But do you have it in your heart? Do you? Not talking happy here. Happy's good. Happy is a good thing, but happy is temporary. Happy is circumstantial. And happy is often shallow. But hear, hear me this morning. This, what we're talking about here in this scripture, joy is awesome. It's permanent. It's irregardless of circumstances, and it is deep. Do you have it? When the Holy Spirit fills, whatever he fills is also full of joy. The old gospel song put it this way, the world didn't give it to me, and the world can't take it away. I have a sister who has been in York Manor for eight years. I have another sister. She was in the 9 o'clock service here this morning. And she's well. But the sister, Ruth, who's been in York Manor these years, she's in poor health. She has COPD. She's battling cancer. She has a broken leg, been broken for about three years, and they can't can't even set it. So she hasn't stood or walked now in several years. And uh, She has, by anybody's standard, she has a very poor quality of life, or so you would think. Earlier this week, last Monday actually, six days ago, my sister-in-law Debbie, who's here this morning, was visiting her, and they were going through my sister Ruth's list of ailments one at a time, and Ruth smiled and said, which one do you think is going to take me out? She thought that was, she found humor in the statement. Would you believe it? Two weeks ago, when I was there, my day is Thursday. It's the only day I can go. I'm a caregiver on Thursday. And I was in visiting, and we were talking about the wonderful upbringing we had and the warmth and the the Christmases at home. And we were just basking in the memories of a wonderful childhood. And she smiled at me in the midst of us reminiscing, and here's what she said. Isn't life grand? you hear that? She didn't say, wasn't life grand back when I had my health and we were young. That's what she said. She said, isn't life grand? That's it. That's what I'm talking to you about, and that's yours. Uh, It's yours. When you say and mean it, take my heart. Those whom the Holy Spirit, when if he has your whole heart, you will be pure, discerning, loving, thankful, and joyful. Is that you? Now we're going to sing. I don't want anyone to leave this place this morning thinking, I'm going to try harder. Oh, if, if, you, if that's what you've heard this morning, you missed the whole point of what I'm telling you. Listen to me this morning. Your only job is to say, take my heart. The Holy Spirit's job is. You don't have to try to do any of this. You give your heart and the Holy Spirit He'll do his part, and he'll make you pure, and he'll make you discerning. He'll make you loving. He'll make you thankful. He'll make you joyful.
Want to sing it? Do you mean it? Let's stand together as we sing.